You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. French historian Edouard de Laboulaye had an idea. It was 1865. The American Civil War was drawing to a close, and he wanted France to give the U.S. a gift. He decided on a statue that would mark America's hard-fought democracy and celebrate its centennial. And he didn't propose just any statue. His concept would take years to build. Frédéric-Auguste Bartholdi, who shared Laboulaye's vision, was commissioned for the monumental task. Bartholdi traveled to America in 1871 and chose Bedloe's Island for the statue's location. Though small, its position made it a landmark noticeable to every ship entering the harbor. He envisioned the statue greeting all who entered the port, and thus the nation. The first phase of construction began in France in 1876, Bartholdi created the arm holding the torch first. In 1878, he finished the head and shoulders. He finally completed the statue in 1884. While Bartholdi and his team in France put the final touches on the statue, a crew in the U.S. built the pedestal. In 1885, all that remained was shipping the Statue of Liberty to her new home. Workers disassembled the statue and carefully packed it in over 200 crates. The Isère, a French frigate, arrived in New York that June. The laborers got to work erecting the pedestal and the statue. On October 28th of 1886, President Grover Cleveland stood before a crowd of thousands to dedicate the 305-foot-tall statue. From that moment, Bartholdi's vision came to life. The Statue of Liberty greeted everyone who entered the harbor. In 1892, when Ellis Island opened, immigrants viewed the statue as a symbol of freedom, hope, and a new way of life. 
It remained both monument and working lighthouse until 1933, when the National Park Service took over its care and maintenance. Though they shut down the lighthouse, the Park Service opened the statue to visitors. The iconic plaque and poem, uh, The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus, became a favorite photo opportunity for tourists. And like the statue itself, the poem, with its famous lines welcoming the tired and huddled masses, had its own story. New York-born, Emma and her siblings wanted for nothing. Her father owned a successful sugar refinery and provided his family with a comfortable lifestyle. And private tutors taught them German, French, and Italian, in addition to other subjects. In 1866, 17-year-old Emma authored her first book, titled Poems and Translations. Her father loved her work and published the book to support his daughter. Emma sent a copy to Ralph Waldo Emerson. The famous writer shared her father's praise and mentored the very talented Emma. For several years, she wrote more books expressing her opinions on life. In 1883, she donated a sonnet to help raise money for the pedestal. The words became synonymous with immigration, yet the poem didn't become part of the statue until after Emma's death. She died a year after Cleveland's speech, and mostly her sonnet was forgotten. The new Colossus wasn't memorialized until 1903, when one of Emma's friends pushed to make the sonnet a permanent part of the monument. While we recall the names behind many famous works of art, Others remain in the shadows of their creations. This is one such story. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. As with many people born to a lower socioeconomic status at the time, we don't know what year Edmonia Lewis was born. When asked, she gave different responses for different situations. It could have been 1842, 1844, or even 1854. What we do know is that she was born in New York sometime in July. Catherine, her mother, was Afro-Indigenous of the Ojibwe people and lived in the Credit River Reserve on Lake Ontario. Her father was as mysterious as her birth year. Some believe her father was Samuel Lewis, a valet of Afro-Haitian heritage, other sources speculate that African and Native American writer Robert Benjamin Lewis was her father. Proper birth certificates were rare at the time, and none appears to have been recorded for her. Edmonia had a half-brother, Samuel, from her father's first marriage, and even though Sam was nine years older, the two siblings were inseparable. For a while, the children enjoyed the perfect family life with loving parents and time spent growing up in Greenbush, New York. By the time Edmonia turned nine, however, both parents had died. Sam and Edmonia went to live with their mother's sisters near Niagara Falls. Despite the tragedy, the children thrived. Edmonia continued to make the traditional Ojibwe crafts her mother had taught her. Tourists loved her artwork, often buying whatever Edmonia and her aunts made. She ran through the forests in the summer with her brother and other local children. They fished, swam, and explored the great outdoors, even hunted together. For the rest of her days, Edmonia recalled this part of her childhood as some of the best times of her life. But life moved on, and one day, her brother told her he was leaving. He'd caught what people called gold fever. Men across the country were leaving their families in droves, hoping to strike it rich out west. The moment that sparked the gold rush happened on January 24th of 1848. One James Wilson Marshall, a carpenter from New Jersey, caught a glimpse of something shiny in the American River at the base of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. 
he discovered an abundance of gold flakes. Marshall originally moved west to work on a sawmill for John Sutter, who set up a colony that would later become Sacramento. And the men swore each other to secrecy so that the gold would be all theirs. Sutter had already claimed quite a bit of land, enslaving hundreds of Native Americans to help colonize the area. The amount of gold the men found made it impossible to hide. Soon, gold miners from miles around appeared for their stake in the riches. Sam Brannan, a storekeeper in San Francisco, proudly displayed the vial of gold he'd panned from Sutter's Creek. Within weeks, most of the men in San Francisco converged on the settlement to pan for gold. Word spread, bringing in people from around the world. In December of 1848, President James K. Polk announced that California had gold. California's population jumped from 20,000 to over 100,000 the following year. Most of those heading to the gold mines in 1849 were men. Known as the 49ers, the men left everything behind, including wives and children. In the men's absence, women struggled to keep businesses afloat, the farms running, and raise children alone. Many of the 49ers found the wealth they sought. Holding on to it was another matter. Businesses charged extra, pushing up the cost of living. Many lost their fortunes to gambling, drinking, and time spent in brothels. That San Francisco storekeeper, Sam Brannan, never went back to seek out more gold. Instead, he bought nearly all the local supply of mining equipment, then marked it up and sold it to miners. His business model inspired the saying, During a gold rush, sell shovels. While Sutter went bankrupt, Brannan became the state's first millionaire. Others also made their fortunes, including Edmonia's brother, Samuel Lewis. It's unclear why Sam took Edmonia away from her aunts and left her with one Captain S.R. Mills, but Edmonia fell into a deep depression. Her parents were dead, her brother abandoned her, and she'd been taken away from her aunts and the place she called home. Gone were her forests with animals and trees. Gone were the fields where she ran and played with other children. She was living with a man she didn't know in Manhattan, a crowded, dirty city. And though she waited for her brother, he never returned home. Samuel headed to San Francisco and opened a barbershop while searching for his fortune in gold. He made enough to travel to Europe and eventually returned to the States, settling in Idaho. His business ventures failed, though, and some of his buildings caught fire. He moved to Montana and opened another barbershop. Fifteen years later, he built a home, married, and had a son. Though he never returned to see his sister, he sent money for her housing, food, and schooling. And after four years in Manhattan, Edmonia left to attend the New York Central College upstate. Established in 1849, the school offered black and white students an education. Higher education was rare for black people, much less women at the time. The school focused on grammar, reading, math, and geography. While the male students took additional science, natural history, and astronomy classes, the women learned needlework and knitting. Edmonia studied at the school from 1856 to 1857. In 1859, she resumed her studies at Oberlin College in Ohio. The founders prided themselves on the school's Christian values. Like Central College, they accepted students black and white, men and women. The school also became the first in the country to offer co-ed classes. Though many departments offered co-ed learning, most women studied in the school's ladies' department, earning a literary degree at the end of four years. Edmonia received a well-rounded education, 
But of all her studies, she demonstrated a rare talent in her favorite subject, art. As a woman of color, Edmonia felt at home there. Oberlin had strong ties to the abolitionist movement and took part in the Underground Railroad that helped enslaved people escape to Canada. One Reverend John Keep and his wife welcomed her into their home, and she lived with them from 1859 until 1863. The community also reflected the school's ideals. Both black and white residents lived and worked alongside each other. But while the school and town seemed progressive and somewhat idyllic, black people, Native Americans, and women still lacked equality. Politics and contentions surrounding slavery led to arguments and other conflicts. Several classmates participated in John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry. Brown hoped to start a rebellion that would result in freedom for all enslaved people. While the uprising failed, it sparked conversation. The tensions on both sides grew. Oberlin's leaders feared something terrible would eventually happen. They were right. The headlines for February 11th of 1862 read that two women at the college had been poisoned and a suspect was in custody. A month earlier, Edmonia had joined classmates Maria Miles and Christina Ennis for an unchaperoned sleigh ride with a few young men. All enjoyed the ride despite the bitter cold. Afterward, Edmonia asked the other women to join her for a hot drink. The women eagerly accepted. Edmonia poured two glasses of spiced wine and handed them to the women. The three sat and talked until the glasses were empty. Maria and Christina bid Edmonia goodnight and retired to their rooms. Not long afterward, the two became violently ill. The school administration sent them home to their parents until they recovered a couple of days later. Both women accused Edmonia of lacing their drinks with a drug popularly known as Spanish fly. Though most often historically used as an aphrodisiac, in large doses it's a poison. In retrospect, Edmonia realized that asking them to join her and not participating in the drinking had made her instantly suspect. No matter how much the Reverend insisted Edmonia was innocent, she was arrested. Without any evidence, the court and jury found Edmonia not guilty. At first, she thought life might go on as it had before. But that was before the second incident. Edmonia struggled through her studies and was preparing for her final paper when a professor accused her of theft. The subsequent investigation proved she had not stolen the missing art supplies. But, innocent or not, the controversy around Edmonia was too much for the school's reputation. Oberlin asked her to leave and not return for the fall semester. She had worked hard, but Edmonia would not finish her degree. Determined, nonetheless, to make a career from her artistic talents, Edmonia moved to Boston with financial help from her brother. She mingled with abolitionists and confided that she would love to make fine art. She never told anyone how she came to leave Oberlin. One day she saw a statue of Benjamin Franklin and thought she could learn to make statues too. Three male sculpting tutors turned her down. Male sculptors usually learned sculpting by taking anatomy classes first. Women didn't have that luxury. Finally, she found Edward Augustus Brackett, who specialized in creating busts. With his mentoring, Edmonia began to make and sell clay medallions. Prominent Boston women began to commission her. But it was her rendition of Robert Shaw that brought her fame. Shaw, a white man hailing from Massachusetts, had headed into the Civil War with America's first all-black regiment. He stood by his men when they were ambushed and died with them. 
Confederate soldiers unceremoniously tossed them into a mass grave. Edmonia made enough money on creating busts that she began setting aside money for her ultimate dream, to move to Europe and find more inspiration for her art. Meanwhile, she wanted to help others. With the war over, Edmonia traveled to Richmond to give newly freed black people basic educations. By August, she had enough money to set sail. She chose Florence, Italy, where neoclassical sculpture was popular due to the number of marble quarries. Edmonia was pleased to discover that Italy widely accepted women artists. Color and sex were not nearly as controversial. Soon, she felt right at home with local artists and American expats. In time, she traveled to Paris and London for more inspiration before returning to Italy and settling in Rome. At the time, sculptors often paid stone crafters to help with their statues. Edmonia lacked the resources and did the work herself. She created traditional busts of famous and influential people. However, most of her work comprised African-American and Native American subjects. Native American sculptures weren't unheard of, but Edmonia's depictions stood out. One of her better-known works was a series of statues inspired by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's The Song of Hiawatha. Edmonia's versions of Native Americans possessed a more respectful reality than the stereotyped and fantasized versions that her fellow artists created. She told stories with her sculptures. In one of her works, an African-American couple has broken free from their shackles. The beauty and depth of emotion in her subjects made her very successful. In 1870, she returned to the United States. For a while, she tried to reunite with her brother. Though she made several attempts, he never reciprocated the effort. In 1873, she traveled to San Francisco for a major art show, praising the West Coast for being much more friendly than the East Coast. The show wasn't as profitable as she had hoped. Disillusioned, she tried seeing her beloved brother once more. When he still wouldn't see her, she returned to Europe. Edmonia would never see Samuel again. Back in Rome, she created her most famous work. Inspired by Cleopatra's legendary suicide, Edmonia chiseled the queen's image slumped back on her throne, a smile on her face as venom from a poisonous snake took hold. Her message seemed to say that Cleopatra died on her own terms as queen. Edmonia first revealed the sculpture during the 1876 Philadelphia Centennial Exposition. Judges were astounded. While some viewers considered the dying queen's image ghastly and graphic, others praised it as masterful. The statue failed to find a buyer when the expo ended, and it went into storage when Edmonia returned to Rome. She continued to create more sculptures and inspire other artists. And then Edmonia disappeared from history. Almost. Edmonia Lewis died in London on September 17th of 1907. She never married and had no children. In her will, she requested two things, a dark walnut casket, and for her death notice to appear in the British Roman Catholic publication, The Tablet. Edmonia faded from history until two women dug into her past, biographer Marilyn Richardson and Roberta Bobby Reno, a historian in East Greenbush, New York, where Edmonia grew up. Richardson tracked down Edmonia's most famous sculpture, The Death of Cleopatra. It wasn't easy. Edmonia had left the sculpture in Philadelphia. Richardson first tracked it to a saloon in Chicago. After that, it marked a racehorse's grave at a track. The racetrack eventually fell out of favor and was sold to become a golf course. 
but Cleopatra, still on her throne, stood vigil over the changes that came and went. The golf course gave way to a munitions site, which later became a center for bulk mail. Through all sorts of weather, neglect, and abuse, Edmonia's work of art endured. Boy Scouts attempted to cover the graffiti with paint. But finally, the sculpture found its way to a mall. From there, Richardson managed to find it in a storage room. The Forest Park Historical Society rescued the sculpture in the 1980s. Ten years later, they donated it to the Smithsonian. Along the way, another sculpture surfaced of two sleeping infants, simply called Night. Along the way, another sculpture surfaced of two sleeping infants, called simply Night. The Baltimore Museum of Art purchased the piece at a Sotheby's auction for $130,720. Other pieces were sent to the Howard University Gallery of Art, the Metropolitan Museum, and the Detroit Institute of Arts. The historian Bobby Reno was a devoted fan of Admonia's, though she knew very little about her life. In fairness, no one did. Dedicated to finding out more about this former Greenbush resident, Reno began searching for Edmonia's gravesite. Eventually, it was found under an unmarked slab. Reno restored the gravesite and added a simple marker, per Edmonia's will. But Reno and Richardson weren't finished. They wanted to do one more thing in honor of Edmonia. In 2020, Reno sent a request to Oberlin College to right a wrong. The college took their request to grant Edmonia Lewis an honorary degree before a committee. Meanwhile, Reno lobbied for more public recognition. On January 26th of 2022, Edmonia appeared on a U.S. postage stamp honoring her talent and heritage. In April, the college finally got back to Reno. The committee would not grant the request for an honorary degree. Instead, Oberlin decided to give Edmonia Lewis the full degree she'd nearly completed 160 years ago. On June 5th of 2022, Oberlin President Carmen Ambar stood before the graduating class and awarded Edmonia Lewis her degree in ladies' courses, posthumous. Edmonia, who her aunts and family sometimes called wildfire, had finally received the recognition she had earned all those years ago. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up, like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect, flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at price 
prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. In 1929, the good times of the Roaring Twenties came to a halt. The New York stock market crashed. People lost their life savings. Businesses failed, leaving one in four workers unemployed. Many had to stand in long bread lines for rations to feed their families. For those struggling to survive, it seemed that no one cared. Banks defaulted on mortgages and evicted families. President Hoover believed that they'd all get through it if people just helped one another. Families moved in together. Philanthropy increased with food drives. Communities came together to help farmers through a sort of collective action that's come to be known as penny auctions. After foreclosures, they bid on the houses, farming equipment, and livestock the banks had seized for only pennies and returned them to the farmers who had supplied their food. But it wasn't enough. Neighbors often had no more to give than those in need. Without anything left to share... Americans turned to the government for assistance, but Hoover remained unmoved. Americans who had once lived in apartments and houses now lived in makeshift huts made of cardboard, tar paper, or other discarded supplies. Some dug holes in the ground and used whatever might count as a roof to keep the rain out. Others took up residence inside water mains and under bridges. The settlements became known as Hoovervilles. The residents referred to the newspapers they used as blankets as Hoover Blankets. Empty pockets turned inside out were called Hoover flags. When people wore out the soles in their shoes, they placed Hoover leather, which amounted to pieces of cardboard, into their shoes. It's easy to see that the president's reluctance to help Americans didn't win him many fans. Typically, Americans looked down on those seeking handouts. People thought taking state welfare was shameful. Unless it was someone they knew who had fallen on hard times— the general sentiment was that people on welfare did little to nothing to help themselves. Droughts in the Plain states made the situation worse. Without water, crops, animals, and people died. Some government officials insisted the situation was hardly as dire as people made it out to be. If they didn't see it, then it didn't exist. But a group of photographers was about to change that. In March of 1936, Dorothea Lang passed a sign along a road in California sensing a story she turned around. The handmade sign read, Pea Pickers Camp. Lang worked as a photographer for the Farm Security Administration. Her job was to help raise awareness of the American farmer's plight. She grabbed her camera equipment and got out of the car. The thin, disheveled woman and her children were friendly enough. The woman told Lang that she and her children had been living on vegetables from a nearby field and whatever birds the children managed to catch. A 32-year-old Florence Owens Thompson and her seven children allowed Lang to take several photos, including a close-up of Thompson's tired and desperate face. This was the face of rural America. Thompson's portrait came to represent the Great Depression and made Lang one of America's top photographers. She had always loved art, but especially photography. In 1914, she had worked for the famous pictorialist movement photographer Arnold Genta, in 1917, she had studied at the Clarence H. White School of Photography. After graduation in 1919, she had opened a portrait studio. Lang's gift for photography had captured the Farm Security Administration's attention. 
They asked if she and other photographers, predominantly men, could document the effects the Great Depression had had on America. Between 1935 and 1944, Lang and the others took 80,000 photographs of struggling Americans in the drought-ridden Dust Bowl. Migrant Mother, the portrait Lang took of Florence and her children, spread across the nation. Florence, an indigenous woman, had lost her husband in 1931. Since then, she had worked in the fields for minimal pay and scraps. Americans called Florence the Madonna of the Dust Bowl. Without a word, she had described the plight of rural farmers. Lang took more heartbreaking photos of malnourished children in breadlines and farm workers from all kinds of backgrounds hunched over crops in sparse fields. Her photography captured the moments where Americans, regardless of heritage or upbringing, shared compassion. Lang went on to say that she strove to create photos that created social change. The day after Lang's photo of Florence and her children appeared in the San Francisco News, the State Relief Administration arrived with food rations. In 1940, Lang became the first woman to be awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship grant for her exceptional talent and creativity in the arts. Like Edmonia's statue of Cleopatra, Lang's art reflected reality. Lang died in 1965, though she is not forgotten. She inspired a host of photographers to prioritize humanity in their photos and influenced the development of documentary photography. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmandMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro. The first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious hand washing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at gainbridge.io. Visit gainbridge.io/parityflex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.